Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host and fine woodworking editor, Tom McKenna, and I'm wearing white socks. With me today are regulars, executive art director, Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. And special projects editor, Matt Kenny. I'm wearing wool socks. <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> hey, as usual, before we get started, I need to take care of some business. You can visit our website to keep up with the exciting tool giveaway for Fine Woodworking's 40th anniversary. As I've mentioned, we have 40 great tool prizes, but they change regularly, and you have to enter for each one. The current prize is a Bosch right-angle 12-volt drill with an adjustable head. To win the drill, you must enter by Monday, March 7th. And to enter, you can go to finewoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. That's the number 40 finewoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. Finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook and look for Matt, Mike, and me on Instagram as well. And uh, this is going to be a little bit of a different twist. We uh, we have a sponsor for Shop Talk Live, which is kind of good. And Matt's uh, a little bit upset that it's not uh, his favorite donut shop, but... Uh, this episode of Shop Talk Live, free donuts. it's sponsored by Highland Woodworking. Uh, you can shop online at highlandwoodworking.com and find all the brands you know and love to use in your shop, as well as many unique tools you haven't heard about yet. Family owned and operated since 1978, Highland has a friendly, experienced staff who are always ready to answer your questions. Right now, Highland is offering a free $199 value saw stop accessory upgrade when you buy a saw stop professional cabinet saw. Don't miss out on this limited time opportunity to save at highlandwoodworking.com. All right, business cool. done. So we're uh, getting paid this week. We are. Nice. You know, <laughs> maybe we'll start dressing a little bit we're better. We're all going to get an extra six slices of American cheese in our, in our paycheck. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Why don't we start off with, uh, with a question? This one uh, should be easy. Uh, it's a power tool question from Louis, Louis Eastman. And Louis writes, I recently purchased a new miter saw, and I'm wondering if you have any advice for making a permanent miter saw station. And I think in his unedited version, he was talking about um, having kind of a wobbly setup for his miter saw. And I think we had talked about this a couple weeks ago. Right. Yeah, I mean, we've done a couple articles on various styles of stations uh, for chop saws. One was sort of this portable thing with wings that fold up and fold down. And, you know, I think that's a, I guess that's a good thing if you have to store things out of the way. Um, I think the solution, actually, I don't have, I've never bothered actually building mine in, but if I were to get serious about it, John White did an article about shop cabinets and the tools and shops a little while back. And he basically had the chop saw sitting on a narrow cabinet which was lower than the adjoining cabinets on either side of it. And what that does is it creates basically a work surface at the same height as the chop yeah. saw surface. So, you know, that's a, that's a really cool sol solution. I like that. What I have, mine is just sitting on a, on a bench against my wall, but I have little riser blocks that are the same height of the table so I can bring them in, move them around to, to support long stock for that. That's funny. I have a, I have a DeWalt chop saw and I have a DeWalt, it's a, basically a job site stand that folds up and you know i can mount oh. the, the saw to to a rail and i can slide it back and forth and it has workpiece supports on either side but it's not great for the shop because i don't get storage and the wide stance of that 
um, unit <laughs> takes up a lot of space. So I'd, I'd like to do something more permanent. And Matt did a great article or, or edited an article on a, on a cabinet um, plywood setup from Tools and Shops uh, this year. R- yeah. That would be a good solution, I think, for a miter saw station. Yeah, that's what he used for his miter saw, saw station. It was a, how to make a quick uh, countertop. And it left the base was left open so that you could put storage boxes and things in it. Uh, it was all plywood construction, and it was uh, very smartly laid out so that you got maximum usage out of your plywood. And uh, it was by uh, oh my gosh, Campbell. Yeah, Doug Campbell. Doug Campbell. Douglas Campbell, perhaps. But yeah, Campbell. Good save. Yeah, I was like, oh, I was blanking <laughs> I'm on, I'm on that I'm name. <laughs> He's a, a very nice gentleman down in Asheville. Um, and that's a good thing. And the only thing, because in his original unedited version, he did mention wobbliness. So I would say, you know, you're going to build a cabinet and probably I would do a top like Mike suggested. And then whatever your base is, you got to anchor it to something, you know, anchor it to the wall uh, or anchor it to the floor. And then you anchor your uh, chop saw to the top of the cabinet mm. and you won't have any wobbliness. I don't have a slider. It's just a 12-inch chop saw. I wonder if the slider, the wobbliness becomes a bigger issue with the whole front-to-back motion. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I guess it depends on how wobbly it is. I mean, the, the slider we have down in the shop at Fine Woodworking is uh, a slider. Did I just said that? Uh, and it's <laughs> and almost, it slides. And it slides, by the way. Um, and that's like the world's largest portable chop saw station. And that thing is that thing is wobbly. It's wobbly, and everything about it is wobbly. Uh, and it doesn't really seem to affect no, the. I mean, there's only a, a severe kickback on that thing about once every two months when yes. someone has to go to the hospital. Yeah, that but, sort of dealt with the issue of dust collection by, in essence, placing the thing in a giant refrigerator crate size. Box. <laughs> so everything it hey, gets it has a back. drawer yeah. at the bottom for you so you can empty it but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i feel bad for our shop manager he has to empty that thing out because not only does it collect dust but everyone just takes their off cuts <laughs> and throws it into the bottom of that giant box and empty packs of cigarettes everything goes in there right it's uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was a. Uh, was that ever a fine working article? Or it was, was not. It that was, was John, not. That was John White's first iteration, and his second and much improved iteration did make it into right. the magazine. Yeah. John White is the master of shop furniture. Yes. Yes. All right, let's move on to the next question. This one is from Andrew Verbovsky. And Andrew writes, I am designing a chest of drawers for my brother that will have undermount soft closed drawer slides. I would like to use integral drawer fronts. Is it possible to just rabbit the front and cut the dovetails in the rabbit in order to conceal the hardware? Yes. 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 That's a short answer. Next question. That's a cool thing. I mean, we we tend to think of uh, drawer slides as being, you know, maybe not fine woodworking, maybe more cabinetry level stuff. And especially the side mounted slides, you have a nice piece of furniture and you open up the drawer and you see all this steel on the Mm -hmm. side is kind of jarring. Um, actually, you can do really cool fine furniture applications with undermount slides like these guys. I've done that. And it's mm-hmm. what's nice about it is you can get full extension slides and you can get some pretty you know um, heavy-duty support for shelves. I've done it on entertainment centers and stuff where someone wanted to load these drawers up with CDs mm-hmm. you know, back before you could put everything <laughs> on an iPod and forget about it. Um, but yeah, that's um, – there is uh, the main thing about uh, doing the undermount slides is you have to add about an extra half inch or so to the drawer front 
it needs to hang down below the drawer sides to conceal that gap. And you do need just a little bit of clearance on the sides. And you mentioned rabbiting the drawer fronts. You only need to rabbit it maybe about a sixteenth of an inch or so. Uh, the other thing you can do is if you have, let's say, solid slab case sides, you can add a little strip to the front of the case, maybe a sixteenth of an inch wider than the case side itself. So it doesn't look like a face frame. It's just slightly wider. And that can hide the hardware as well. So uh, either way, it, it's pretty easy to conceal it. You kind of need to hot rod it. I've always just had to buy the slides, sort of wrap my head around it and figure out how to install them. Yeah, you definitely have to buy the slides first yes. and figure it out. Maybe even make a, t- a couple of test drawers to figure it out. Yeah, And I believe you have to have a plywood bottom that's glued in. I think it has to be a half inch plywood bottom because I think you are screwing, screwing that, into that. Yeah. Yeah. I think someone may say, no, that's stupid, but I believe the bottom has to be glued in plywood. No, yeah, Mike, we, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we showed those slides in, uh, Tony O'Malley's, uh, underbed storage article, I believe. Those yes. And Bill Duckworth a while back wrote a, a great article on different ways to install slides. And one of the methods was how to, hot rod and undermount slide to work with a just a, a regular dovetailed inset drawer. Yeah, I would say more important for building these drawers, given that it's for his brother, whether an older brother or a younger brother, is that oh, you no. must in oh, some no. way install some type of <laughs> practical joke, sabotage device. Like a whoopee cushion every time you close it. Like every time he opens it up, there's a spring-loaded false bottom that pops up and all these <laughs> snakes jump out of them or something, you know? That's what you got to do. Unless he's getting paid for it. Well, you know, just make one drawer and then have a replacement ready to go. Have a funny one ready to rock. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Hey, let's go move on to our first segment. It's time for our all time favorite furniture of all time for this week. Do you want to uh, rock one out, Matt? You want? I will gladly start. Go ahead. And I am going to bust a move on people here. Can I say that? Only no. if you only if you're sitting down. <laughs> I'm going to pull out a copy, an issue from a mat little magazine called Fine Nothing. It's called Home Furniture. <laughs> <laughs> Home Furniture was a magazine. I believe that there were only 15 issues uh, back in the mid 90s. It was published by the Taunton Press. I was the copy editor. You the were the copy one. editor, and John Benzin worked at the magazine. Yep. Yeah. And it was sort of like an ex- the whole issue was like the reader's gallery or what we call the gallery now, uh, where you had beautiful pieces of furniture and then you would have maybe a couple of paragraphs telling you about the piece of furniture, maybe some basic dimensions and other information. So it was it's a much beloved and missed magazine. Uh, um, but uh, anyways, my favorite uh, piece of all time is from that magazine issue number five. And it's actually a piece by one of my favorite uh, furniture makers, Hank Gilpin. I like Hank because he's just so salty at times. He's <laughs> and I love that about him. But it's a really nice. Um, and I think this piece has actually been in fine woodworking as well. It's a really nice uh, <clears throat> chest of drawers. I guess is what we would call it. But it has uh, instead of being a solid bank of drawers, there's three drawers across the top two drawers in the middle row and then two drawers in the bottom row. But there's also in this, in the middle and bottom rows, these nice gaps, these spaces that go all the way through the case. And then, uh, there are two sort of legs in the middle that arch up to meet underneath the middle of the first row. 
And so not only do you have this really pretty shape for a chest of drawers, but you also have a lot of really cool negative space. Yes. And uh, the, the, the drawers all have really nice uh, shapes to the fronts. They're angled slightly on the edges. And um, it's just a beautiful combination of solid wood and negative space and also steam bent parts to uh, it's just that interplay of the the positive shapes and geometry of the parts and the negative space and the geometry that that creates. And it's just an amazing execution of those two things, which usually in furniture, I think most furniture makers think of only the positive space when they're yes. designing. Right. Right. And it's this huge opportunity that we're missing with neck to play with negative space. And I mean, this piece is executed to perfection in that regard. You know, the one thing that, that, uh, Hank is also a master at is is green and matching green on drawer fronts and even on this piece, even with the negative spaces, he manages to continue the grain up through the drawers on on each side. Well, yeah, it's not just that the grain runs across from face to face to face, but also the grain they, is is almost curved right. to match the curve of that arc in the middle of the piece. Um, He's a visionary. <laughs> he's, sure. yeah, some, he, he's amazing and uh and the pulls are beautiful uh everything about this piece is absolutely gorgeous and yeah. uh, it's a very high style design but as you guys mentioned about the wood he's a woodworker who's a good designer and that the design doesn't trump or you know play a bigger role than the than the construction itself it's sort of like you know he's a master woodworker who is also a master designer and the two really blend to a piece of furniture. It's definitely a handmade piece, but all of his work is just, you know, incredibly alive and, and interesting to look yeah. at. And his, his brain just explodes with drawings all the time. I only worked with him once and I remember being in his shop and he had, you know, dozens of sketches just on the wall that just, you know, pop out of his brain and he just draws them out, throws them up there. And then, um, you see them in, in real life later down the road. It's pretty amazing, the volume of work that he does. Too. Yeah. One, one thing that I picked up from him and later uh, refined uh, under some suggestions from Mike was sketching out ideas and how to do figure out variations. You know, And Hank just said, you, know, you draw something and then you ask yourself, well, what could I do different? So there's not this huge push for creative genius. It's just answering a simple question. And when I was there once, uh, he did this article for us called The Design Doctor, where he looked at pieces that were completed, already made by three readers, and then he made suggestions on how to improve them. And that is actually, I think, my favorite final working article of all time, because Hank did not tell them how to make a Hank Gilpin piece of furniture. He Im stepped into their minds and deciphered what they were really intending to do and designed that piece of furniture better. Yeah, and all three pieces were, they weren't bad, they weren't no. ugly by any means, they no. were pretty fully resolved. It's like, yeah, okay, it's that's what it is. What? How could I push that even further? And Hank had some really great tips yeah. on that. Um, also, my favorite illustrations of all time in the magazine, John Hartman yes. knocked it out with those illustrations. Yeah, so we had the photo of the real piece, Hank's suggestions, and then John Hartman, who's a master illustrator, gave sort of the artist's rendering of Hank's, Hank's suggestions. Right. And really, really, and actually, one of the guys actually then rebuilt Remade the it. piece. Yes. And yeah. it, it was fantastic. Yes, it was. Really great. Um, but anyways, he, had, he showed me his sketchbooks, and he, and one thing he was doing currently, 
he had a, like a hundred different variations of how to do uh, a decoration on a drawer, a door front. And it just blew my mind. And uh, his, you know, that, that just to show me, I can't originally remember what my original point was for talking about this, but just keep going. You're almost up to your half, you know, half yes. that time limit. <laughs> yes. Faithful listener. What am I at now? Um, but to, it, help, it really helped me tremendously because I, I realized that creativity isn't, in, in good design, isn't a natural talent per se. It's something that you can develop, and it's not actually hard to develop. Right. You and know? even the best guys, it's something they work really hard towards good designs. Yes. And that's really encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Cool. And you get better just also by building, you know, if you want to get started, you know, build from someone else's plans and then you learn as you do and you yeah. discover, you know, the techniques that you like to do and designs that you like to make. Very cool. You want to uh, step up, Mike? Sure. Um, so my favorite, um, all-time favorite piece of furniture of all time for this week is um, the Gamble House in Pasadena. California. You always, I mean, it's only the second time we've done it and you're already like trying to break the rules and you sure it's not a number two pencil. Thank you, Matt. Oh, it's waiting for that. That was yes. awesome. I'll just stop right there. No. Um, okay. So uh, the Gamble house in Pasadena was designed by green and green uh, architects who were brothers. And not only did they, did they design homes, they also designed the furniture that went into the home. And the reason why I'm selecting this as a single piece, because I'm sort of, you know, at that kind of that inspiration phase, I think of this, um, of this segment where when I went to the gamble house, um, and as on a field trip, when I was in art school for the first time and you enter this place, what you're struck by is not the architecture itself, not any piece of furniture, but everything as a whole, the, the sense that everything was really truly of a piece. Um, and that was just tremendously inspiring. And um, I really like green and green furniture, the style. But as, as much as I like it, I found that through the years, I've never actually really built a faithful reproduction of a green and green piece. And even when I see them and they're really well executed, they just sort of it seems that they kind of seem like fish out of water. Like, what are you going to do with this? Like, where are you going to put it once you make it? And I I finally thought, well, it's probably because my reaction had to do with the fact that all these things were designed to fit in a location to be, you know, of, of a greater whole. And when you pull a single piece out of context, it's like, it's just kind of there, but it's this sort of bizarre thing. So, you know, this is really, it was really influential, but I think the way that I was influenced by it was not that I build things in the green and green style, but, you know, slowly through kind of working into my own style and building a lot of pieces out of necessity and otherwise for my house, and you start to fill up this space, um, I realized that as much as I'm trying to build individual pieces of furniture that are interesting and complete in and of themselves, just by not trying to do something wacky or different every time, that slowly, you know, I'm accumulating sort of a whole or a holistic approach to what I'm doing. I'm really creating an environment to live in. And, you know, obviously seeing the Gamble House, like a lot of people said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my own house and build everything in it. And that's something that I'm never really going to achieve. But I I still think that idea of, um, you know, thinking of pieces, not in terms of individual standalone things, that's done. What idea do I want to do next? But how 
uh, my work can sort of reflect kind of a larger philosophy or sensibility um, was definitely inspired by that first trip to mm-hmm. the Gamble House. It's funny. We talked about that with Clark Kellogg a little bit about building for space, you know, yeah, building, right. building f- uh, furniture to fit a- appropriate spots in the home. And I've, I've done that not, not so much spatially, but in terms of like, if I'm building stuff in my, for my living room, I've been building things in maple just so I kind of have a match set. And it's just sort of that philosophy. Well, I don't want to do something too different, but although I'm kind of feeling like I need to get away from that dogma a little bit, but you know, in general, it's just sort of thinking, Hey, I'm going to build this for a certain room. You know, how is it going to feel in that space? Yeah, I think it can organically involve as well. Like I made a Morris chair and then it's like, okay, that's a real piece of furniture. And then I, built sort of an arts and crafts couch to go with it. Then I thought, well, this is the only room in my house that has matched furniture. So that room is just going to get arts and crafts furniture. And that's kind of what it was for a while. And then I started doing like weird things like a Hobbit cupboard or, uh, you know, other pieces that, that didn't exactly fit arts and crafts, but you could kind of push the limits and they all kind of fit in an odd way. So, you know, I would, I, yeah, I would never let, you know, something, a direction I'd been going, stop me from doing something I want to do. I think that's, that's kind of the wrong idea as well. Yeah. And in that regard, I, I, my wife is going to much to her chagrin is she's going to have to move because (laughs) (laughs) I'm sort of at that same point where it's like, listen, the house we own now is not the house that's going to fit with what I have in mind. It's like, You know, because I, you know, my particular style of furniture is developed from, you know, from straight up like shaker to now it's sort of this mix of shaker and Asian. And that's, you know, where it's going. And it's like, yeah, I want a house where I can have all that fit in there and also fit with all my pottery and things like that. And it's like, yeah, it's not the house I live in. So pack your bags. (laughs) <laughs> that's kind of harsh <laughs> Sounds, you just need a shed in the backyard that's, that's what well, it may just get <laughs> I, well yeah that's probably what will end up anyways those are going to be tonight at least <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, as, as if any of our wives listen to this podcast <laughs> mine does does she well uh, yeah well it's on you know in the living room when she's studying so she goes what? do you listen to the podcast in your living room well if i'm doing stuff around the house yeah i'm where i listen most of the time i listen to it when i'm in the shop you know well, let I'm me dial that back just a little bit you listen to the podcast <laughs> i listen to the podcast man i like to hear your heavy breathing <laughs> all right well my it's funny matt uh, grabbed something from home furniture sort of sort of stole my thunder but um the Home Furniture Magazine, for a short time, I was just going through this one issue uh, where I plucked my uh, favorite piece from, and it's just a, an encyclopedia of amazing furniture. Um, and every once in a while, when I do go back and revisit the, the magazine, I'm just blown away by <clears throat> what we actually included in it. But anyway, my all-time favorite furniture of all time of this week is a Brian Boggs ladderback chair that... He built uh, back in 1995, and this guy is actually one version of it sits in my office, and I never get to sit in it because it's in front of my desk. It's where you know Mike and Matt get to sit once in a while. Um, but it's a super comfortable piece made from cherry with hickory bark. And the amazing thing that Brian did with this chair is. He just made it comfortable, and he redefined what the Appalachian form really is for the twenty and twentieth and twenty first centuries. Because yeah. 
he made it comfortable. Like the Adirond, the uh, Appalachian chair, you, you know, if you think about the original design, it's pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty straight. And what Brian did is he um, was determined to make it fit the human body better. And so he actually built kind of a model of her torso and plucked it down onto some of the prototypes as he built to create this back splat and back post structure that just accommodates your your lumbar structure and um the height of the seat is 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 perfect um the the stretchers on the lower base don't impede with your feet you know as you sit in the chair and he made the like i said he made it out of cherry and hickory bark and now the seat has been around for 20 something years and i'm actually sitting in it now <laughs> which is really wonderful. Um, but it's aged, the cherry has aged to this really deep, rich, reddish brown, and the bark has kind of aged in the same tone with it. And so what you see in the magazine photo in the home furniture issue is is very different from what I'm sitting in now in terms of its overall color tone and how it's evolved. It's really beautiful. It is. Uh, the For me, the, it's the perfection of chair. That the Brian the Brian Boggs uh, ladder back chair is perfection. It's comfortable. It's gorgeous. It's light. It's elegant. And I've sat in a lot of chairs made by a lot of different people, and none of them comes close. Well, I won't say that, but none of them top tops it. Yeah, it's like okay, now I don't have to worry about trying to design a chair. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, I won't be a chair maker because that that's done. <laughs> Yeah, it's just beautiful work. And, and, you know, it's been around, like I said, this one, and we have another box chair in my in my space, and they've both been around for about 20 years, and they've gotten some heavy-duty use. Um, I've yeah. actually interviewed for the copy editing job in this chair with Tim Schreiner I sat so many years ago. I one of those chairs when I interviewed for my job. It's a lucky chair. I do. The story behind those, um, you probably know, is that at one point in time, I think it was Tim Schreiner, former editor and publisher here, uh, you know, knew of the chairs and convinced the Romans. He's like, listen, this guy's chairs and they're fairly affordable now. And I think they bought like they bought a few. I don't remember how many. Several, numerous. But, yeah, yeah, he even he even said to me, "Hey, uh, that chair is pretty comfortable." And I said, "Yeah, it's the most comfortable chair I've ever sat in." And he said, "Yeah, if you want to buy it, buy it now because he's going to be discovered." <laughs> yeah, and sure enough. Boom, there he is. Hey, before we move on from this, let me tell one quick story about Hank Gilpin. It's really quick. My favorite story about Hank Gilpin, he was writing an article with someone on staff. And Hank being, he likes to mess with people a little bit, you know? And uh, he submitted all of his text for the article in little short clumps written on postcards. And he just <laughs> sent in postcard after postcard after postcard. <laughs> That's fantastic. I think uh, I I know who that person was. Yeah, as long as it wasn't me, that's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's let's move on back to some questions. This one is a long one from from Randy, and uh, it's regarding uh, sharpening. So (laughs) sit back and relax and listen to a little story. After flattening the backs of my chisels, I used the Veritas MK2 honing guide with the narrow blade guide accessory to create the main bevel with successively finer stones through 8,000 grit. By the way, I did check to be sure the bevel was ground square to the edges. Then, without removing the chisel from the honing guide, I used the handy feature on the MK2 to create a micro bevel and went back to the 4,000 grit Shapton stone, then 8,000. 
The resulting microbevel was not even not in even width across the blade. It aligned from narrow on one edge to wider on the other. I'm sorry, it angled from narrow on one edge to wider on the other. The chisel cuts well, but why would the micro bevel not be even across the blade? Um, well, again, it's one of those questions that really begs an answer, not specifically related to the question in and of itself. <laughs> Um, I mean, the, the answer is, yeah, it, it might be slightly off axis when you change that little cam. Um, it's probably not as bad as it looks because the difference in angles of that primary and secondary bevel is only a degree or two. And that really shallow intersection will exaggerate visually any discrepancy in angle. So um, even though it looks like it's it's way off, chances are it's just minimally minimally off and it's really probably to your point, it's not enough to affect performance. But here's the thing. I wouldn't recommend using that little cam guy at all. And here's some good news. I can save you a lot of work in your sharpening because for me personally, the idea of bringing that primary bevel to a really high polish, it defeats the whole purpose of a secondary bevel, which is your primary grind is at a shallower angle so that when you hone at a slightly steeper angle, you're only removing just a really small amount of steel to get sharp. That's a whole, for me, that's a whole purpose of doing a primary grind and then honing at a secondary bevel. So for me, that's about a five degree difference. For a chisel, I like to sharpen my chisels or grind them at 30 degrees and hone them at 35. So my honing guides are always at 35 degrees. I never use that little cam guy. I don't see a reason for doing that. So um, number one, I wouldn't use it. So now that's not a problem. <laughs> and number two, I certainly wouldn't bother polishing that primary grind because none of that is affecting the cutting edge at all. So you're just wearing out your stones. You're spending more time sharpening than you really need to be. And you can just you know grind it whatever you want to grind it, kick it up a little bit higher in your jig, do your 4,000, 8,000. I do 1,000, 4,000, 8,000. Boom, takes about you know 30 seconds to sharpen. Get the burr off the back and you're good to go. Yep. Matt, you have something to uh, retort? No. Uh, you look like you did. <laughs> <laughs> I use that little dealy bob at the bottom of the honing guide. I have that same honing guide and I use it. And... Uh, my, to Mike's, what Mike said, I agree with, it's not really a big deal. It's not going to be that much of a difference. It's exaggerated. And uh, I've had that happen, and uh, it hasn't made a real difference in the working property of the plane blade. Uh, for a chisel, it really wouldn't make a difference, in, you know, really either. No, not. I don't think it's enough to take it out no. of 90, even if it's like portion of a degree off 90 who cares it's still right. gonna work yeah and it could come from like my mike suggesting that it comes from change when you change the degree of the little uh roller thing that somehow it's uh getting things a little off axis so it's out of square i mean it could also be from uh applying unequal pressure across the width of a blade uh which could cause that um uh, but I would just not worry about it. The bigger thing for this guy, whose name is Randy, is that, uh, like Mike said, he needs to stop polishing the the, the primary bevel yep. and just uh, polish the, the secondary bevel. 
And uh, actually, that for me, that raises a question uh, for you, Mike. I wonder how you do this. And, and Tom, when I, I, I will regrind my chisel, let's say, and then I'll work that primary bevel at, on my 1,000-grit stone and on my 4,000-grit stone oh. and only knock it up to the polishing stone to do the micro, the secondary bevel. And that's my thinking there is that that means I'll get more sh- secondary bevel sharpenings out of it, honings, because I won't be removing as much material. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay. Like what are the two angles? What's the angle difference between – is it just that little roller cam difference? Normally, yeah. Right now I do two degrees. Okay. Yeah, because I do five, and I think that probably renders the scratch pattern moot or more moot, mm-hmm. and that it makes less of a difference because a higher angle between the two, the more sharpenings I can get without that getting wider. Yeah. So and I do my I do my initial grind on the Tormac, which leaves a pretty scratch free surface, but it's a hollow grind, so I'm certainly not going to take the time to flatten that. Yeah. Um, and then like at. Uh, Bob Van Dyke's school, he only has uh, high-speed grinders, and his technique for reestablishing the hollow grind on the grinders is to never get all the way to the tip. So all he's doing is reestablishing the grind and sort of narrowing up that that secondary um, bevel, getting really close to the edge but never getting rid of it because that way you can pretty much guarantee that Number one, you're not going to burn that edge. And number two, you're not going to take it out of square inadvertently. Yeah. So yeah. he's always just sort of skinning up that by grinding but never getting rid of it. So it makes, again, you're only removing a little bit of steel when you hone, and mm-hmm. that's that's a whole key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm the same. I think I, I follow Mike's <clears throat> angles. I do a hollow grind. I have a slow speed grinder, not a Tormac, but uh, I do my chisels at 30 and you know, the secondary bevel at 35 and the plain irons at 20, you know, hollow grind at 25 or the primary at 25 and the secondary at 30. Yep. So it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, <clears throat> let's move on to uh, our next segment. Um, I know you uh, fellas know about this, but Fine Woodworking is now partnering with the Highland Woodworker Web TV show, and we're going to help produce and promote each episode this season. Uh, the season's opener is actually live now at thehighlandwoodworker.com. And it features a segment with Matt, who what? Uh, demonstrates <laughs> Greg Paolini's method of cutting dovetails on the table saw. And uh, joining us today is the host of the show, Charles Brock. Welcome, uh, welcome, Charles, or can we call you Chuck? Well, I, I am Chuck to most of the world. Uh, my <laughs> wife likes me to be introduced as Charles for some reason. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I already uh, announced our partnership, you know, the Fine Woodworking partnership with your TV show. Um, but I wanted to get, you know, before we started talking about that in a little bit more detail, I thought I'd ask you uh, a little bit about yourself and how you got into woodworking. Well, uh, late 70s. Uh, I'd finished a, a, a master's degree in early childhood education, and I was uh, had a young family and a little bit of time uh, in the afternoon. All of a sudden, without working on the degree, and neighbor uh, bought a bunch of Sears Craftsman woodworking tools and, and set about making a shop. And he could set them all up, but he really didn't know what to do with them. And uh, I started visualizing things I'd like to make. It was no background in woodworking whatsoever. Uh, I started making them. He was nice enough to let me use his tools. And 
<laughs> and uh, pretty soon I went out and did what a lot of uh, hopeful woodworkers do. I bought a a uh, radial arm saw. <laughs> oh my <laughs> goodness! <laughs> and uh, and uh, you're lucky if it cuts square because uh, if it does, somebody's going to come lean on the bench and, and uh, it won't cut square anymore after they knock it out of square. So uh, anyway, I, I got very interested. Went to the there was no internet. Went to the library, checked out about every book I could find on. Uh, furniture, period furniture, and started looking at, uh, uh, started looking in at stores at furniture, and pretty soon I was, uh, building a few things, and, and people seemed to like them, and I was selling them, and, um, uh, just, uh, just enjoying developing as a woodworker. And about that time, uh, late 70s, I ran into Fine Woodworking Magazine. Good to hear. And uh, yeah, and uh, and Highland Woodworking was fairly close by, was a hundred miles away in Atlanta. And between uh, the two, that's where I learned uh, a, a lot of my early woodworking. Uh, still today, the Highland Woodworking catalog, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was kind of the uh, wish list. And uh, if you had a problem, you'd look and see, you know, maybe this tool will help me solve that. And fine woodworking gave me a, a lot of direction and inspiration. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's one of the things that's kind of unbelievable today is uh, doing this show in the partnership with uh, with both Highland Woodworking and Fine Woodworking is uh, it's is, like uh, exciting. Your, your past has come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, you you teach chair making to, uh, as well, right? That's part of your uh, your full time work these days. Yeah, I, I retired as an educator, uh, a public school educator, uh, seven years ago. After thirty one years, and uh, taught elementary school. And oh wow! During that whole time, I was building furniture and uh, enjoying that and. Uh, they all kind of came together. Uh, I walked out the the door in retirement from one thing and had my first, uh, uh, I call them instructional bundle, DVD book and patterns ready to go uh, to help people learn how to make a, um, a Maloof-type rocker. And I had already been teaching that at, at Highland Woodworking. Uh, and it uh, just kind of developed from there. When when did you discover the magic of Sam Maloof? <laughs> well, it, there again, thanks to Fine Woodworking Magazine, the article that you uh, have reprinted, uh, I believe, in your current issue, mm-hmm. uh, and, and this is the same. It's the same thing with so many. Uh, uh, students of Malou for those that uh, would like to, to build such a, a rocker. You're flipping, you get the magazine, first thing I do is flip through it and see what grabs me first. And it's basically visual. Uh, and so I see this rocker go by with the, the uh, flattened S curves as the uh, the uh, the rocker sleds and so forth. And it, it's, it just pulls you back to it 
And so I flip through the magazine and I see this rocking chair. And first time, I'm just totally enamored with it. Mm -hmm. And I want to build one of those. And uh, I had no idea that someday I would. Someday I would build (laughs) a a lot of them and and help people uh, through through classes and and through the uh, instructional bundles. Uh, it's kind of amazed me all over the world to be able to uh, uh, to succeed in something that I initially wanted to do. It's, uh, it's a thrill. Yeah, it's it's an amazing uh, project to to jump into. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about the show. Um, how did you and your director and co-creator Steve Price get it started? What was the what was the impetus behind it? <laughs> Let me say, uh, the, the real magic, uh, anybody who's seen the show knows that it's not because I have a pretty face. Uh, <laughs> None of us do. Um, hey, hey, yeah. hey, some of us might. <laughs> Thank you, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, the magic behind the show is, is Steve Price. He uh, is uh, also my son-in-law, my my. Uh, Oldest daughter married well, married somebody that uh, we just worked well together. He had a bunch of skills as a producer, a television producer and uh, videographer, editor, and he kind of volunteered. And uh, so we did the, the DVDs for the bundles. And we we were visiting up here, and we were actually living in Georgia at the time. We were visiting up here in Middle Tennessee, around Nashville, uh, they they lived here, and and uh, we went out to pick up a pizza uh, for dinner, and I sat down in about ten minutes waiting on the pizza. Uh, Steve and I were, what are we going to do next? And he said, Well, what does the industry need? And I said, Well, I think it needs a magazine show, mm-hmm. uh, something with you know several different topics in each show uh, where we would go out and and uh, uh, get the, the stories, the, the real stories behind uh, some of the iconic woodworkers. Uh, and I think it could, of course, inspire and, and, uh, and teach uh, a new generation from seeing what uh, what the, the greats have done. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Well, we have a, we have so, a common goal. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so uh, that was the easy part. In about 10 minutes, we figured out the name for the show, The Highland Woodworker. We hadn't talked to Highland Woodworking about it yet. uh, 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 I already had a relationship with uh, Highland Woodworking that, um, and kind of uh, Chris Bagby's uh, ear. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought, we we went down and, and talked to Chris about it at uh, Highland. And, and, and said, well, excuse me, Chris, Chris Bagby is the owner of, of Highland Woodworking. That's right. right. Yes, thank you. Um, and a, a marvelous fella. And uh, so Steve and I said, well, this is what we'd like to do. And uh, we think you could use this to build community, uh, you know, around Highland Woodworking, which is uh, a good thing. And so... Um, he thought about our idea, and he says, well, this is radical. And he kind of left it like that, and we were, well, you know, maybe it's not that kind of, it's not so radical, but <laughs> um, 
it, it turned out that uh, it took a year of trying to take the radical idea of doing a show and sending it out via their uh, their email list, mm-hmm. um, and which was kind of a new thing at the time, and we're talking about uh, just six years ago. Yeah, um, and so we uh, he thought about it, and he has a, a, a very good list, and uh, finally we decided to do a pilot, uh, and with his endorsement. And um, so we, we uh, got together with Roy Underhill and did a pilot for the show, and it became the first episode, and we uh, signed a bunch of sponsors. Uh, and so Steve and I uh, own the show, make the show, and Highland is the name, uh, Highland Woodworking is the name sponsor, and we have other sponsors, and we're starting our fifth season and uh, it's really a joyride. Yeah, I bet. You get to travel just like uh, the editors of the magazine do to uh, different shops and get to meet some, some makers who are just amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've had you know, uh, Roy Underhill, uh, Brian Boggs, President Carter, who's a woodworker, mm-hmm. um, Craig Nutt. Uh, that, I think you have a, a guy that used to work there, Matthew Teague. Yep. Yeah, he uh, actually lives close by. We're in Nashville, Tennessee, or close to Nashville. That's where he lives. Uh, we did a special on the H.O. Studley not too long ago. The okay. whole show was about it. Uh, well, that's uh, amazing. Do you, yes. Do you have yeah, a do you, a do you have a favorite episode in your in your memory? <laughs> or are they all special? Well, <laughs> well, they are. You know, like Maluk used to say, which when people would ask him which project he liked the most, he liked the one he was working on now. Yeah. Good answer. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm really excited about the uh, the uh, episode that's coming out today that, that features uh, Ronnie Young as a moment with a master. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, Ronnie Young makes wonderful furniture. Very, just be- absolutely beautiful. He won the Cartouche Award this year. That's right. Yeah. Um, and to see his work uh, up close is just uh, is just a joy. Uh, and to see how how much effort he puts into it, and and uh, to try to get an idea of all the collective skills he has. Uh, developed in order to to uh, uh, to craft such. It's uh, it's just amazing. But uh, most of the artists are like that. Yeah. So you'll be doing what uh, six episodes this se- this season, right? That's correct. Six episodes. So uh, basically every every two months. Yeah, a lot of travel coming up, and you'll be up here in a few weeks uh, visiting with us, which is going to be fun. Yeah, can't wait to uh, can't wait to get there, and um, uh, we're going to be uh, taking a trip up to Maine uh, and uh, doing a moment with a master, Christian Bexford, which yep. I'm excited about, and so many woodworkers uh, just love Shaker Furniture, and there's nobody better, I don't think, than than Christian Bexford. Yep. Yep. And you're going to visit with Garrett Hack and uh, our esteemed Mike Pekovich as well. That's right. Uh, we're uh, 
Um, the esteemed Mike Pekovich, we can't <laughs> wait. Uh, well, I, I'm looking forward to uh, having you stop by, that's for sure. <laughs> well, are you going to clean up your shop, you know? Uh, that's, that's always the thing that I hear. Uh, when I have conversations with uh, the candidates, they always say, well, I'm going to have to clean up my shop, so I don't even get that out of the way. <laughs> I, I was just, a head start. I was just sweeping this morning, so I think we'll be in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> hey, today, Chuck, uh, today we've been talking about um, our all-time favorite furniture of all time for this week, and uh, I thought it might be fun to get your take. Do you have a, a favorite piece of furniture that, um, that you want to chat about? Well, I was kind of torn uh, over that. Uh, yeah, you know, I've worked for ten years, basically uh, doing the the Maloof rocker and, and low back and uh, the settee. Uh, I I would probably look kind of foolish to uh, my students if I didn't <laughs> probably clean the rocker. Yeah. Um. And uh, yeah, it, it. Like I said, I've been very enamored with it, and it, it's the to me. I found that the sculpting of the lines, getting it, uh, the rocker and any of his chairs to flow, um, getting the, um, uh, the organic look. And I'm getting tired of hearing organic. I, I went to buy a television <laughs> set the other day and the person selling the TV was a, uh, young lady. And she said organic about five times in describing the color I was going to get. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, the, yeah, uh, the, the qualities of the chair when it's, of the rocker when it's done right, uh, and most people stop sculpting too early, mm-hmm. but, uh, when everything flows together and it looks like it, uh, uh, is kind of, a monolith carved from one piece almost, uh, looks like it's moving as it sits, you know, at rest is, uh, is something that's just always interested me yeah. and, and, uh, kind of propels me to do better. Well, that's awesome. Hey, we have to, uh, we have to run now, but thanks for spending some time with us today. And, uh, we're looking forward to your visit and, uh, getting to meet you and Steve. And, uh, I think some of the, the Bagby family as well will be here. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Hey, thanks, Chuck. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. See you in a few weeks. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Let's get back to uh, some questions. Uh, This one is from JJ, and JJ says, uh, I need to get a jointer planer, which is 600 pounds, out of the shipping crate and onto a mobile base. I've considered getting help, but I have liability concerns, and I don't want to damage something by trying to lift it by the in-feed, out-feed tables. What's the safest way to do this for people and for machine? Uh, so he's a joiner planer. That's a beast. That's a big machine. 600 pounds. Yeah. But I have moved uh, machinery that weighs more. Uh, I, my joiner weighs approximately fifteen to 1,600 pounds, and I moved that. Um, a lot of it by myself. And, uh, so the first thing, the machine thing is curious. I I would think that you probably don't have to worry too much about messing up the tables. I mean, if it were possible for you to, uh, somehow get straps underneath it and then lift it by the straps using, I don't know what you would use. I don't know, you know, an engine hoist perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing we do in our shop 
with something like this is in the, in the magazine shop is to hook, we would hook uh, straps underneath the tables and then put hook it up to our hoist mm-hmm. and then just barely lift it off the ground and and slide it because the hoist slides on an I beam. I'm guessing you don't have that in your <laughs> yeah, shop. It's no. pretty rare. In case you don't have an I beam in your shop, right? Uh, <laughs> What I would do is, uh, first of all, walk it uh, slowly, you know, uh, back over to the edge of the pallet that it's on. And you would want some help here. Uh, you should not try to do this by yourself at all. And the more people you have, the better. Uh, four grown men should be able to do, you know, easily do this. Um, but walk it over to the edge if you're stuck with yourself or another person and Walk it off of the pallet onto some four by four blocking, and to keep then, it level until and, you're almost and, and all the way off. Keep it level, yeah. yeah. And then when you have it on that four by four blocking, what you can do is lightly lift up one end, which you should be able to do because of uh, the, the amazing uh, powers of a pivot point, yep. um, and kick out that one. Uh, and then lower it down to the ground. That might be a little tricky because then you're going to have some weight. <laughs> Watch your toes. Watch your toes. Uh, and then go and do the other end and lift it up and kind of pop it out. I mean, at that point, you really should be doing it with more than one person yeah. because yeah. holding that weight and lowering it down is, even though it's on a pivot point and you, you have some a bit of a fulcrum action going on, it's still yeah. fairly heavy. You could do what uh, one of my best friends did in high school, uh, or his mom would do when she needed furniture moved. She'd invite us over for dinner and then say, hey, guys, can you help me move some stuff around? And then two hours later, I mean, we're, we've rearranged her house. I mean, what friend – I mean, I can't, not all – I'm sure there are some men who would not accept this, but most guys will come over and help you do just about anything yeah. for a six-pack. <laughs> you know? And if not that, a piece of pizza. A piece of exactly. pizza. Well, yeah. Mike, you know, we talked about the question yesterday. Mike uh, brought up a really good point that some of these companies um, will come out and set up your machine for you, and there are other specialty machine setup companies. Yeah, like that, local machinery places I know in our area that sell machinery for an extra fee, they'll also deliver it and set it up for you, which if you're you know uh, on your own uh, in a small shop or something like that, you know, spending, you know, maybe a couple hundred bucks, it sounds like a lot of money, but if it's a big piece of machinery to get it in place and set up where you want it and making sure it's working and you're not hurt, you know, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not a, it's not a horrible investment. Um, but then again, if you can find four friends and you know, the cost is a pizza and a six pack, that's kind of a fun way to go. That's a good too. bargain. Yeah. I and actually, I think I would say to a minute, uh, cause I, I'm not sure how tall this pallet is. It may be shorter than a four by four, but in actually, a safer way to do it rather than using a single four by four as a blocking is to stack up like some two by fours flat. Oh, there you go. And that way you can take out one piece at a time and lower it less. Mm -hmm. And that's actually how I raised the main casting, the big bed of my joiner was I would raise it a little bit with a jack, a floor jack, and then put more blocking under one end, go raise the other end until it was above the height of the, uh, of the the two pillar bases that it sits wow. on. And then I just lowered it back down until uh, it was sitting on those pillar bases. Well, it's a little scary when you have all these little Jenga cubes <laughs> it stacked was up. A little, it, well, you, yeah, you have to make sure that it's stable. But uh, my, the guy that taught me to make furniture, you think that's scary. He built the barn at his house where his shop is. And it's like, you know, like 50 feet long. Uh-huh. And it has a central steel I-beam running down the center of it. 
he installed that thing by himself doing exactly that, <laughs> raising it a little bit and putting another piece of blocking under it. It's crazy. Wow. And he's only about three feet tall. No, I'm just <laughs> Is that why you make such small furniture? Yes. Yeah. All right. That's it for uh, this episode of Shop Talk Live. Tune in again in two weeks on March 18th for our next episode. Meanwhile, if you have any woodworking questions, send them as well as your comments to shoptalk at taunton.com. You can spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. Actually, let me, uh, let me take that back. We don't care about your neighbors. I'm going to have to re-edit this, Ben. Um, please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. You can catch the podcast via iTunes. And while you're there, please give us the all-powerful five-star rating. You can also stream the podcast on the web at www.shoptalklive.com or catch us on iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop.